Now, if a lot of us are honest with ourselves, we've probably had that moment in our marriage where you thought, this isn't what I signed up for, right? And having sat on that couch before, it's not a very fun place to be. When you walk through those difficult, just lonely moments in marriage, you just feel like nobody can relate. It's a really painful experience. If you were here with us last weekend, one thing we did at the very end of our services, uh, I challenged you guys to think about a lie or a label that you maybe have been carrying around for a majority of your life. And, And by definition, a lie or label is something that maybe you did or something that was done to you that you believe defines who you are as a person. And and so because we're ashamed and embarrassed of whatever that is, we do whatever we can to hide, deny, or, or suppress that. But what ends up happening is those lies and labels speak to us and and we find ourselves enslaved and in bondage. And so at the end of the service, we wrote whatever those labels were, whatever that label was for you on a card. And we went to different crosses around the worship center and back in the chapel. And we just nailed these labels to the cross, signifying that, that God has forgiven us and we've been free from our past. After all the services, I went around to the different crosses and just read some of the things that a lot of us wrote down. And I got to be honest, it was just painful seeing some of the stuff that you have been carrying around for a lot of your life. Now, what's interesting is that the most common thing that what we've been carrying around typically has something to do with marriage and and sexuality. And, And so a lot of you wrote down things like you believe that you're nothing more than somebody who's been divorced. You're nothing more than maybe a sex addict. You, your, your label is adultery or, or pornography. Or, or maybe you think that, that your parents split up because of you at a very young age. Again, this is the weight and the pressure a lot of us have been walking around with a majority of, of our life. And so whatever you wrote down last week, and I want you to know that this is a safe place for you. We don't maybe have all the answers for you, but we would love to journey with you in this. And, and as painful as it was reading these different labels last week, and there was a part of me that was really excited because I knew, I knew that a lot of us began taking steps towards freedom because the stuff that we've been hiding was brought to light. And, and you see, that's where God can do his best work. Now, if you haven't been with us uh, recently, we've been in a study uh, walking through a book in Scripture called 1 Corinthians. And and this is really a letter that was written to a church about 2,000 years ago, written by a guy named Paul. All right, And uh, it was written to a group of men and women who were following Jesus in the ancient city of, of Corinth. Now, we have titled This Weekend and Next, Fixing Us, because we've come to this point in the letter where Paul walks the Corinthians through God's better design for marriage and and sexuality. Now, depending upon how you were raised or the type of church that you maybe come from, talking about sex in church seems a little bit off, seems a little bit awkward and inappropriate, right? Well, from about the 3rd to 10th century, the Catholic Church actually distributed a calendar of what they called approved days of when a husband and wife could have sex. Now, on this calendar, the 40 days before Christmas were off limits. You couldn't have sex the 40 days leading up to Easter. You couldn't have sex on Friday because that was the day that Jesus died. You couldn't Get together with your spouse on Saturday because that's the Sabbath. That's when you're supposed to rest. And on Sunday, you can't have sex either. Why? Because Jesus rose on that day. I mean, talk about hating the holidays. Talk about hating the weekend. You know what I mean? 
And so when it was all said and done, the Catholic Church only approved of about 40 days on the calendar of when a husband and wife could have sex with one another. I mean, no wonder people were leaving the church then, you know? Now, during the Middle Ages, the church then took it one step further and basically said, all right, sex is actually just off limits altogether. There are no approved days, and and we're taking this back because God thinks that it's disgusting and it's gross, and and we as people of God want nothing to do with it. And so at that point in Europe, during the Middle Ages, the culture basically said, all right, you don't want it? We'll we'll take it from here. And and so since then, culture's kind of led the way on the discussion of sexuality. But whenever we open up God's word, we see that, that God never really says that. In fact, the Lord has told us very clearly that that sex is his. He designed it. He came up with it. And he has a better plan for us when it comes to expressing this in our life. And and so God says, no, it it is mine. I want to reclaim what has been lost. And so whatever you bring to the table this morning when it comes to this part of your life, understand that that Jesus wants to show you a better way. He can give you a fresh start and, and a new beginning. He He can show us all what it looks like to be walking and living in freedom when it comes to our sex life. Renowned professor Howard Hendricks once said that we should not be ashamed to talk about that which God was not ashamed to create. And so we're going to talk about sex this morning, all right? Now, if you have your Bibles or Bible app, I want you to go ahead and turn to the uh, New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, there should be a black Bible right there in front of you. And 1 Corinthians can be found in between the books of Romans and 2 Corinthians. And and today we're going to find ourselves in chapter 6 of this letter. All right. Now, as you're turning there, uh, understand that it's really tough for us to try to imagine how saturated the city of Corinth was with sex. I mean, they were obsessed with it. And this is actually what the city of Corinth was known for. It was known for a city where you could go and experience pleasure with no strings attached. Now, the one location that was pivotal in this city was the temple of Aphrodite. The uh, goddess Aphrodite is the Greek god of pleasure, fertility, and and sex. And, And this temple located in Corinth is supposedly where she resided. They built it in honor of her. And so... Men and women who were a part of uh, the different trade industries back then, they would dock their boats at the seaport. The men would walk a thousand steps up a mountainside to the temple of Aphrodite and they would pay to have sex with a prostitute. I mean, this is what the city was known. I mean, the, the West Side Nut Club Fall Festival is kind of like what to Evansville, the temple of Aphrodite was to Corinth, all right? I mean, both kind of similar, you know what I mean? (laughs) And so the temple of Aphrodite defined this place. And so you can understand a little bit more how it was so awkward for these people who were following Jesus to be taught something completely different and upside down about this area of their life called sex. And and so if you're in chapter 6, pick up with me in verse 15. Here's what Paul says. He says to the Corinthians, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never, Paul says. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, Paul says, that the two will become one flesh. Now, Paul says here in verses 15 and 16 that When it comes to this area of our life, sex is just different. The Bible makes it very clear that 
all sin equally disconnects us from a relationship with God, but when it comes to the area of sexual sin, the consequences can be greater. And so while all sin is equal in rebellion against our creator, not all sin is equal in consequence. And, and so this is kind of Paul's way of saying, look, this part of your life is just different. There's more at stake. It, it, tends, to be, it tends to be a little bit more sensitive. You see, sex is an emotional, mental, spiritual, and physical experience. At the end of verse 16 here, notice how Paul quotes something that's actually a reference to the very first wedding, the very first marriage, and God declared Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden as husband and wife. They they became one. Now, in the Hebrew, the original language that Genesis was written in, the phrase where we get becoming one flesh comes from the Hebrew word akkad, and it means to bind together. It, It means one unit. And so God basically said from the beginning that that sex literally glues a husband and wife together. Now this is why it is a lie for us to believe that that it's nothing more than just a physical act. Like there, can it really be that risky? I mean, what's really at stake? It's just a physical act. We've all heard that before, right? Well, you know, back at Christmas that uh, my wife surprised me with a golden retriever puppy and we've named him Ryder he's been an awesome dog I mean his temperament is great and he's so obedient and I got to tell you though lately he has recently taken on a rather disturbing habit all right he will run outside chase down our cat he will then mount her and then just go to town on her the other day our three-year-old daughter Vera saw what was happening and she said daddy daddy look at what Ryder's doing to our cat well, I saw what Ryder was doing to the cat, and I just tried to ignore it. I didn't say anything, and eventually I couldn't ignore it any longer. She then said, hey, Daddy, look, please, look, look what Ryder's doing to our cat. He's wrestling her, and it's just so cute. <laughs> that it is, Vera. It is so cute, isn't it? Well, literally that next day I was out doing something in the yard, and I looked over, and Ryder was doing the very same thing to our older dog, Valerie. I mean, it's like, come on, man. Now, one thing I didn't tell our puppy later that day was, I just, I can't believe you. I mean, one day it's with a cat, and then the next day it's with a dog. I mean, just narrow in on one, please. And if not, that's just so disappointing. I mean, what, what a scumbag you are. How sleazy of a dog are you, right? No, I didn't say that. Why? Because animals are animals. Dogs will be dogs, Right? Now, suppose after you and your spouse get done having sex, or maybe you and a boyfriend and girlfriend get done messing around, and how would you take it if the other person said to you, man, that was awesome, that was so great, I can't wait to do the same thing with somebody else tomorrow. (laughs) How would you take that? Probably not too well, right? Why? Because we know that there's something more at stake. It's not just a physical act, It, it is a sacred moment between us and our spouse. And so Paul's basically saying, look, look, so much is at stake here. It's a very delicate area of your life. And, and if you mishandle it, if you misuse it, then it can lead to a lot of anxiety, depression, hurt, and, and wounds. And, and it can lead to, to just betrayal. And, and you walk around life just insecure and shallow and in fear. And so you've got to trust me on this. God does have a better way for it, regardless of what you may think. Check out what he says in verse 18. That's why he continues to challenge them with this. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. 
Now, enjoying this gift to its fullest potential requires that we first understand God's boundaries for it, okay? Now, the word for sexual immorality that we find in in this text here comes from the Greek word porneia. Now, porneia means anything of sexual, uh, uh, sexual contact or behavior outside of how God defines marriage. And so let me just throw this box up here to help clarify it. I've used it here before, and it just helps us understand a little bit more God's design. All right, this is not a political statement whatsoever, but marriage is God's design. Therefore, he alone has the authority to define it. It is between a male and a female. It's between a husband and a wife. And unless he tells us differently, we have to stick to what God says is right and true according to marriage. And so it's within this box right here that God says, you are free to express yourself sexually with one another. Have fun. I created it to be pleasurable so that you could enjoy it. And so what that means is that anything outside of this box is considered porneia. Anything outside of this box is what's considered sexually immoral. And so that includes anything from premarital sex, adultery, pornography, maybe reading romance novels, sexting, oral sex, any kind of messing around with your boyfriend or girlfriend or or Snapchatting risque pictures to somebody of the opposite sex or any kind of sexual behavior between someone of the same gender, same sex. Now, the reason why God says that that this area of our life is so precious is is because of what marriage really is. Now, Paul, just a moment ago as we read, referenced the very first wedding in Genesis chapter 2 when God said the two will become one flesh. And and you see, from that moment of with Adam and Eve in the garden, marriage is described as this covenant that we make with, with our spouse. Now, in the ancient world, a covenant was simply an agreement between two different parties or, or two different people, and, and it was a binding agreement that you couldn't separate unless death occurred. And so God basically says that that's what sex represents. You, you are one with that other person. Now, in the ancient world, after a covenant was formed between two different communities, tribes, or people, there was always a massive celebration afterwards. And at the celebration, there was always choice meat and and fine wine to illustrate the goodness of the deal that was just made. And and so in a similar way, sex is not just pleasurable for it to be fun in itself. No, it's symbolic. It's this ongoing celebration of the covenant that we've made with our spouse. Now, one of the most preferred ways that, that God uses to really communicate with us is through symbolism throughout his word. Now, with symbolism, which actually sex is a symbolic act, we we know that it's not just, again, pleasurable in itself, but but it means something much greater, that there's some deeper significance playing out. And so we have to ask ourselves, well, well, what are we communicating then? What what does this symbolism really mean? All right, so let's go through this. The first declaration that you make between you and your spouse when having sex goes like this. I accept you just as you are. That's what sex says to your spouse. I accept you just as you are. Now, marriage, according to God, isn't a contract. Living off a contract with your spouse causes you to be really focused on how well he or she is doing at meeting your needs, fulfilling your fantasies, or satisfying your desires. But you see, this approach totally contradicts what God says is the basis of a covenant. Before I marry couples, uh, I usually sit down with them and get to know them a little bit more if I don't know them. And uh, I love to learn about how they 
found each other and how they began dating. And, and I always ask them this one question. I always say, well, why have you chosen to spend the rest of your lives together? And inevitably, one of them will say, well, I, I just can't describe how he makes me feel. Or he might respond by saying, well, she just makes me feel so happy. And, and it's very normal and natural to be experiencing those emotions during the engagement period of your relationship. But I understand that, that it's not all about emotions. It's not all about how you feel. And in fact, if the only reason why you are planning to say I do to your boyfriend, girlfriend, or fiance is based upon how they make you feel, then I would challenge you to consider breaking off the relationship because a day is approaching when that other person is not going to really make you happy anymore. He or she will disappoint you to some degree. And I know you can't see it now, but the emotions will come and go. And if you base your relationship upon that, you are basically building your marriage upon sand. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. One person said it like this, the only thing worse than being single and wishing that you were married is being married and wishing that you were single. (laughs) I read through one book recently and an author makes the case that much of our dating experiences here in America, we put on this front, we put on this act to impress the other person. But what ends up happening is that that other individual thinks that they are marrying that front and that image that you've put on for several months or years. And and then several years into marriage, all of a sudden you drop the mask, you drop the act, and and that person thinks that you are just somebody completely different. You know what I mean? Now, you maybe haven't changed whatsoever, but it's that you are just learning to be more about who who you are. And and that's why many people will say, well, I'm leaving him or her because I I just, I fell out of love. I don't know who I married. That's not who I married, right? And so we have to be careful with emotions. According to the Bible, God is love. And more than emotion, the Lord has revealed to us what true love looks like. Check out what John says. He says, this is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Now, love is a verb. It's a decision to act. It's something that we do. Even when every ounce of Jesus' emotions and feelings tempted him to rationalize avoiding the cross and and calling down the angels to save him, just moments before he was crucified, he made the decision to let his body be sacrificed and crucified. Why? So that a covenant would be formed between God and us. You see, Jesus' love for you is not dependent upon your performance. That's a contract. And my experience has been this, that no matter how many times I screw up, no matter how many times I may disappoint God, never once has Jesus served me with divorce papers. And immediately after God pronounced Adam and Eve husband and wife, we're told that they were both naked and they felt no shame. You ever read that in scripture? Now, this is really significant for us because just a few verses later in Genesis chapter 3, We're told that the moment Adam and Eve turned their backs on what God had declared as as right and true, they immediately just went looking for clothes. Nobody told them to go put clothes on, all right? And so the Bible explicitly says that they found some fig leaves, and they used fig leaves to cover their nudity. You ever seen a fig leaf before? There's not much to it. So evidently, Adam didn't have much to cover up, all right? Don't email me. It's just true. (laughs) But from that moment on, they they were no longer innocent. The Bible says that they then knew what was right and and true. 
And so standing naked in front of your spouse makes you feel very vulnerable. But you see, it's the way that you can communicate to your husband or wife, look, I I accept you just as you are, and I promise that, that I'm not hiding anything from you. Here's a second statement that we make uh, during sex. It goes like this. I am yours and you are mine. Isn't that romantic, right? You're going to use that on Valentine's Day, guys, aren't you? I am yours and, and you are mine. Sex is the way that we communicate loyalty and commitment. Take a look at what Paul says in uh, chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. He says, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, yet yields it to his wife. And so Paul tells the Corinthians to approach their relationship with their spouses with selfless motives, to check their egos at the door. Now, it's difficult for us to be one with our spouse when we're constantly focused on our needs and wants and and desires being met. Now, this has implications in the bedroom because sex is the practical expression of oneness. This past week, I read about uh, a recent experiment uh, done by several researchers. They gathered together several men, put them in individual rooms, and for an hour a day, every day for a month, they showed them pornography. Now, unbeknownst to the men who were a part of this uh, test, this, this research, uh, they, the, the researchers put a baseball cap above the TV screen where the pornography was playing. Now, a month later, after the uh, experiment was done, as a way to say thank you to these guys, they gave them a baseball hat. Now, what's interesting is that the moment the guys saw the baseball hat, their bodies instantly were ex- started experiencing arousal. Different hormones were released in their bodies. Their heart rate picked up a little bit. Now, why is that? Well, probably had nothing to do with baseball, all right? <laughs> but... During sexual release, during an orgasm, your body and your mind releases various chemicals and actually literally binds you and addicts you to the person or the thing that is right before you. It's what some uh, scientists call opiates, and and it literally means opium-like. You become addicted to the person or to the computer screen whenever that release happens in your mind. And, And you see, this is a very good thing in its proper context when sex is expressed between a husband and wife because you are becoming one, and, and you are become literally addicted to your spouse. But what happens when these chemicals are released outside of what God says is right and true? Proverbs 6, verse 27 says it like this, can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? <laughs> and you see, so many of us have experienced burns in this area of our life. Several years ago, uh, singer John Mayer said this in an interview. He said, pornography has absolutely changed my generation's expectations. This is, how, this is my problem now. Rather than meet somebody new, I would rather go home and replay the amazing experiences I've already had. What that explains is that I'm more comfortable in my imagination than I am in actual human discovery. Now, let me just translate what John Mayer says right here. By his own admission, he's saying, I have been burned so much by misusing sex that I would actually prefer an illusion to the real thing. And all of our scars in this area kind of look differently, right? Maybe your scars come in the form of you feel this weight and pressure to always look beautiful, to always wear the right thing. And and if you don't get a certain amount of comments throughout your day from guys, then then you feel like you just aren't worth it. You you feel like your value has been compromised. Or your scars come in the form of 
You constantly replay moments with your girlfriend after prom night. And though it happened over a decade ago, you just can't forget it. You can't let it go. And it just kind of ambushes you at the most inopportune times. Or, Or maybe your scars come in the form of establishing certain expectations upon your husband because of a character that you read about in some romance novel years ago. Can I be honest with you for a minute? I'm not proud to admit this, but but I carried a lot of scars into my marriage because of what I had done in the past. Now, Jesus has freed me. He has saved me. And and yes, I have moved on from that. But can I tell you something? Almost every moment of the day, I have a choice to make. Will I choose to reflect on what was? Will I choose to dwell on the past? Or will I trust God enough to spend and dwell on what he says is right and true? You see, this doesn't come easily for us to protect our minds and to protect our marriages. But God says it's just a better way, better way to live. And like we talked about last weekend, grace happens the moment we uncover parts of our life that make us undeserving of it. Let's keep going with this. It's going to get a lot more fun here, all right? Here's the third thing we say to each other during sex. I delight in you. I delight in Guys, take notes, all right? You do realize God didn't have to make it fun? All right. I mean, he could have said, hey, if you want to have children, then just rub your elbows together for 30 seconds and bam, you'll be pregnant. <laughs> That'd be weird, but no, it's fun. We experience delight and pleasure in it. Sex is one of the only topics in scripture that has an entire book of the Bible dedicated to it. The Song of Solomon found in the front half of the Bible. Now, this book kind of serves as a diary uh, from King Solomon. And we're given a snapshot, actually, of their very hot, erotic, steamy wedding night. It's found in chapter 4, and Solomon and his bride, we're going to look at this, Solomon and his bride have just arrived at the Tropicana Hotel, all right? (laughs) Or maybe the jury in, I don't know. But check out what he says as the lights are on, and he sees his wife naked approaching him. Here's what he says. He says, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair, man, it's awesome. Whew, it's like a flock of goats. Mmm. Sinatra's playing in the background. He's got a glass of wine going. I mean, it just, this is an awesome moment. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from the hills of Gilead. Now notice how Solomon starts out by complimenting her eyes. She's naked before him. Guys, how much self-control would this require to just be focused on her eyes as she's naked right before him? You know what I mean? Now, back then, eyes were referred to as a window into the soul. And and so this was basically Solomon's way of saying, I I love who you are, your character, your personality. I find a lot of joy and delight in who you are as a person. And so he just kind of moves on from there, all right? Now, I would highly suggest not stealing Solomon's lines verbatim here, okay? So what does he mean when he says that her hair is like a flock of goats descending from the hills of Gilead? Well, this was his way of saying that you are elegant. And and just like her long hair flowed in the wind, all right, she was beautiful. Her presence was just captivating. Now, let's keep going. Verse 2 gets a lot better. (laughs) Your teeth. Oh, baby, your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn. Coming up from the washing... 
You did floss before you came out of the bathroom. Each has its twin. Not one of them is alone. (laughs) And so Solomon slowly moves down her body and, and he arrives at her teeth. Now, the wisdom of commenting on your wife's teeth really depends upon the county or state in which you live. You laugh because you know it's true. (laughs) And we also know here that Solomon's wife was not a UK fan because it doesn't say your tooth is. (laughs) It doesn't. It doesn't. It's plural. No UK fans don't know what that's like, but you can floss using a beach towel, all right? That's not in the notes. But the reason why he was able to comment on her teeth is because she was smiling back at him. So there's an exchange taking place. He's admiring her and she's receiving it and she's taking delight in his words. And and here's the thing, it's connecting with her in a very deep way. Now, one thing that we know is that his bride was from the country and she spent a lot of time outdoors. This was very different from how King Solomon was raised because he was the son of a king and and he spent a lot of his time indoors. And yet this is why there's a lot of imagery and metaphors referring to nature here. But do you see what's playing out here in this scene? He is stepping into her world and he is speaking her language. He's talking to her in a way that she can understand. This is a very selfless, selfless move on his part. And so, guys, how how well are you doing at speaking your wife's language? I mean, what tells your wife that that you care for her and you love her unlike anything else? It might be a really thoughtful, encouraging note that you can leave her before heading out to work in the morning. Or maybe she, she just loves spending time with you. And, and one thing that you can maybe do is, is hire a babysitter and take her out on a date. It's been a while since you've done that. Or, or maybe your wife loves it when you help around the house, when you serve her, when you do certain things for her that, that simply tell her that, that she matters to you. You see, sex is, is best when the mood is set earlier in the day. The amount of pleasure that we experience in sex is sometimes determined by how well you communicate with each other throughout the day. In other words, don't stop learning from each other. Now, guys, do you, do you know what your wife means when she says, I just want to cuddle? It means I just want to cuddle. <laughs> Took me 10 years to learn that, all right? <laughs> now, frequent and open communication is the key to, to keeping intimacy alive. Now, here's one more declaration that's made during sex. It goes like this. I will protect you. I'll I'll protect you. Now, that seems a little bit odd for for us to reference. I mean, how do you protect your spouse by having sex? Well, take a look at the instructions that that Paul gave the Corinthians in chapter 7. He said, don't deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Paul goes on to say, then come together again. Why? So that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, Paul commanded all the husbands and wives to not use sex to control or manipulate each other. Now, a warning flag in marriage is if you find yourself using sex to to simply get what you want. Now, God never intended for it to be a weapon. Instead, the Lord designed the bedroom to be a place where you can serve your spouse and meet their needs. 
Now, the urges and temptations or thoughts that you might have about sex throughout the day in itself don't make you sinful, doesn't make it dirty, or it doesn't make you a pervert whatsoever. No, thoughts about sex in its purest way is actually from God because he created it. And yet in verse 5, Paul commands husband and wives to not withhold sex from each other unless you both have agreed upon it for a certain amount of time. Now, continuously refusing to have sex with your spouse is not acting in love because you make your spouse really vulnerable to sin in those moments. Now, for the few times that I've gone grocery shopping in my life, I've noticed an interesting pattern. I tend to buy unnecessary foods or foods that I think are really good and that we'll maybe eat, but end up just being junk food and we don't end up eating them. Now, I buy things like that when when I walk into Aldi or Schnucks on an empty stomach. You know what I mean? But the moments where I have eaten something beforehand, I only buy the essentials. I buy what I've come there to to buy and then I leave. I I don't buy all the, the extra stuff. And you see, part of the marriage covenant is making sure that your spouse doesn't leave the home hungry very often. You see, God intends for it to be pleasurable so that when you walk down the different aisles throughout your day, that you have the strength and ability to to say no. And so what would your spouse say if you asked him this question? How well am I doing it at protecting you? How well am I doing it at satisfying you, at feeding you, at giving you something to drink? You see, the call to marriage is really a call to selflessness. About eight months ago, I performed the funeral for a guy in our church, a good friend of mine, Harry Lukens. Harry was 84 years old when his leukemia eventually claimed his life. And if you knew Harry, it just always brightened your day. If you ran into him, he'd walk through the always serving, always telling a joke, always encouraging people. And he just was that guy that you always wanted to be around because he was just so positive. But the other thing I loved about Harry is that he had an incredible marriage with his wife, Carol Ann. It wasn't uncommon to see them walking through the halls or here at church holding hands. During the final weeks of Harry's life, hospice was called in and Carol Ann made the decision that there wasn't going to be a moment where she was not by his side taking care of his every need. And she slept by him every night up until he passed away and And she was just there for him, whether it was retrieving medication, getting him something to drink, helping him go to the restroom, getting him something to eat. Whatever it was, she she did it for him. She she was there for him. And and what I didn't tell you was that Carol Ann during that time had her own health struggles and challenges. Well, the night before Harry passed away, in the middle of the night, he he fell out of his bed. And, of course, it just caused a a ruckus and and a loud noise. It woke Carol Ann up. She was just startled and Harry was so weak at that point that that he couldn't pull himself up to get back in bed. And and so Carol Ann immediately ran over and she tried to pick him up, but but he was just too heavy. She just couldn't do it. And and she told me that she tried for several hours, but but she just was too weak. And so Carol Ann then phoned the hospice nurse to drive over in the middle of the night and and help Harry back on the bed. And, And before the nurse got there, the two of them just sat down on the floor They held hands and they just laughed and rehashed old memories. Before the nurse got there, there was a lull in the conversation and and Harry turned to Caroline and said, I I think I'm ready to go home now. And three hours later, that's exactly what happened. As I was 
hearing the story for the first time before the funeral, I tried to do what I could to comfort Carol Ann and encourage her. And with tears in her eyes, she just stopped me and she said, no, no, this, this was the commitment that I made. She said, I was the one who said to him, for better or for worse, until death do us part it, it was just my responsibility to do that. I wonder if true intimacy has very little to do with what we get. And I wonder if true intimacy is more about what we give, how we serve one another, sacrificing to meet our, need, to meet our spouse's needs and, and wants. I don't know where you are in your marriage. If you're like me, I'm in an okay place. I can always use work. I can always improve. It's a journey, that's for sure. And I've come to different moments in this marriage journey where we just feel stuck. We just feel like we aren't communicating all that well. And so one of the best things that you can do is walk out of here with tools to communicate with each other. And so if you're married, regardless of how you'd rate your marriage, here's one question that I want you to ask your spouse in the next 24 hours. It goes like this. What do you need from me for our marriage to be better? What do you need from me for our marriage to be better? Notice the question isn't, What can you do for me for things to improve? No, because the call to marry is a call to to sacrifice yourself. And so maybe you need to communicate better, express your emotions more often. Maybe you need to be more present. You need to help around the house. What does this look like? The other group of us are those who are not yet married. And and so if you're going to live according to what God says is right and true, you you can't express yourself sexually with God's blessing. And and so if you are single, here's one challenge I want to put before you. It goes like this. What is your plan right now so that you can enjoy sex the way God intended? Again, this seems like a little bit of a weird question, but the truth is that you don't just enjoy sex when you're married by accident. No, it requires intentionality on our part. It requires protecting our minds, protecting our purity. And so maybe Just maybe you need to pull some stuff out that you've been hiding. You need to confess some sin. We've talked about some stuff that has maybe it's been pretty direct. Or or maybe you need to call up a friend and say, hey, I I need you to hold me accountable. Perhaps you need to put some software on your computer or your phone to help you stay accountable. What does this look like for you to prepare yourself for marriage later on and to enjoy sex the way that God intended? Next week, we're going to pick up in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So if you want to go ahead and read ahead, uh, that'd be fine. And and we're going to continue to talk about marriage. All right. I'm going to pray for us. Uh, Corey's going to come out here in just a minute and and close our services out. Uh, But if you're married, go home and apply some scripture. All right. Amen. Come on. Say amen to that. If you can't say amen. All right. Let's pray. Okay. God, we're all a work in progress. And. Um, just speaking for my own life, I didn't realize how selfish, broken, and just prideful I was until I got married. It, it's revealed just so much within me that I need to work out. And I know a lot of us in here, we have a lot of issues in our marriage. Maybe it's his fault. Maybe it's what she did, or, or maybe he won't talk, or, or she won't open up, or, or she won't do this. We've all got excuses. God, sometimes the distance between where we are and where we can be in our marriage is is simply acknowledging our selfishness. And so will you show us that and will you teach us that when we give ourselves up, we're simply emulating what you, Jesus, did for us when 
You willingly went to the cross in our place. We thank you for the cross. That's where we find freedom. That's where we find hope. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.